Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, The F Word, with historian Gerald Horn on how some of history's atrocities are labeled as fascism and others are not. It's very striking that ignorance, in many ways, is the lubricant of what you could call fascism or what could easily be called a fascist-like impositions, particularly those implanted by U.S. imperialism. And whether it is jobs, the climate, or the destruction of immigrant families, people in D.C. are speaking up and fighting for our lives, not for the Russia obsession of the pundit class. No man, no All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. While the corporate media and politicians were in an uproar over Donald Trump's meeting this week with Russia's Vladimir Putin, activists kept their eyes on matters much closer to home, policies that are using our tax dollars to attack and kill in other countries, destroying families, jobs, and a habitable climate for human survival. For example, a cashier at McDonald's would have to work 895 years to make what the CEO Steve Easterbrook makes in one year. Disneyland workers don't make enough to pay for three meals a day, while the CEO Bob Iger makes over $400 million, and Amazon CEO and Washington Post owner Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world, but Amazon workers have to rely on public assistance to make ends meet. These are some of the issues of wealth inequality revealed at the CEO's Work versus Workers Live Town Hall on Corporate Power, sponsored and hosted by Senator Bernie Sanders on Monday on Capitol Hill. Workers from McDonald's, Amazon, Disneyland, Walmart, and American Airlines spoke about low pay, long hours, high health insurance premiums, no paid sick leave or paid vacations at profitable corporations in the United States. Artemis Bell, who works at Disneyland, spoke about the difficulty of affording housing in Orange County, California, and the fear of being homeless. Um, they're my choices to keep my housing at all costs because I don't want to deal with the homelessness in, in Orange County. I don't want to be the person dealing with it. Do you know people who are working at Disneyland who are really sleeping in their cars? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I've, I've known people who are currently sleeping in their cars, and about a year, year and a half ago, a cast member from my shift actually passed away in her car, and she was so embarrassed that nobody knew she was living in her car, and when she just disappeared, people were searching for her. They were looking at the last address that they had for her, and she wasn't there. People said she hadn't lived there for a long time. The company made no effort to look for her. This was a cast member who had... Like, she never called out. She was always doing six days, and she'd worked for the company for about 10 years, I think. And she was just gone, and the company just 
wrote her off because she stopped showing up to work and it was because of the diligent work of the other cast members calling her family and calling the police and everything that they could think of that we were eventually alerted when she was found passed away in her car but the company did nothing to help us find her and the company continues to do very little to help us get to a wage where we don't have to live in our car or worry about living in our car. Ezra Reed covered the town hall for On the Ground, and this is his takeaway from the event. Basically, the people who are really bringing the money in for the company are not making as much as anybody in corporate. They are barely making enough to support themselves. They live in Section 8 while CEO lives and manages in penthouse suites. Disneyland workers don't make enough to pay for three meals a day, while the CEO makes over $400 million. Amazon CEO is the richest man in the world, but the workers have to rely on the public to make ends meet. A lot of hard workers are living in poverty because their bosses are money hungry. Thank you, Ezra. Also on Monday, people filled the streets in the Columbia Heights neighborhood of Northwest D.C. to protest raids by agents of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Chantel James has more. In response to last week's ICE raids, which saw more than 12 people rounded up and detained right here in Washington, hundreds of D.C. residents came together in the plaza at 14th and Park Ave on just a few days' notice. Clergy of all faiths were asked to wear religious attire, and the crowd that gathered represented all ages and social sectors of D.C. All were concerned about the rights of family and neighbors and friends to live here in D.C., and the validity to D.C.'s claim to be a sanctuary city when city officials show willingness to collaborate with ICE to separate families. After a rally, protesters filled streets nearby with a march. We spoke with people before the beginning of the rally to hear the stories behind signs they carried, such as no illegal immigration on stolen land. My name is Eva. What I'm seeing is that it nationally, right, the, what's happening with ICE is a, an acceleration of the kidnappings that they've already been doing to families that are here, that deserve to be here as much as anyone else. And I think the response is finally taking off um, with people that are in the country, seeing these people as their neighbors. But I think they're all a very new movement of, of you know, trying to defend something that is very needed. My name is Kate, and when I went to the Families Belong Together March a couple of weeks ago, the sentiment, or the sentiment was out there a lot, and it's something that I really believe in because I think a lot about how the development of America came from basically the displacement of Native people and uh, driving Native people off of their land, and no one who came here on the Mayflower or as a pilgrim had a a certificate saying they were allowed to immigrate and we pushed a lot of people off their land and displaced a lot of people. And the idea that some people have the ability to be here more than others, I just totally disagree with. This is Chantal James for On the Ground, signing off. Thank you, Chantel. According to the faith-led organization Sanctuary DMV, in D.C., police officers should not ask anyone about their immigration status, and they should not detain any non-citizen at the request of ICE unless the person is convicted of a serious crime and ICE has agreed in writing to reimburse the district for the cost of holding the person in detention. D.C. has been a sanctuary city 
since it was declared one in 2011 under the administration of Mayor Vincent Gray. However, because according to Sanctuary DMV, there are some loopholes in D.C.'s sanctuary policy, and because there are so many federal agencies in D.C. that do not follow it, many immigrant D.C. residents, documented and undocumented, are being lawfully deported, they say. This has also been a week to keep an eye on public services. The 9,000-member local of the Amalgamated Transit Workers Union, which includes train operators and bus drivers for D.C.'s Metro Public Transportation System, voted to authorize a strike on July 16th, but announced that there would be no strike this week as negotiations continued. And an emergency advisory requiring most of the city to boil water was lifted on July 15th. Customers who lived in the previously affected areas should take the following precautions before returning to normal water usage. Run the cold water taps for 10 minutes if water was not used at all during the advisory. Discard food or ice prepared with water that was not boiled between 8.30 p.m. on July 12th and 8.30 a.m. on July 15, 2018. Consult the owner's manual to find out how to sanitize appliances and home filtration systems if used during the advisory. For more information, visit dcwater.com or call 202-612-3400. That's dcwater.com or call 202-612-3400 any hour of the day or night. And safe water, air, and a climate habitable for humans is the goal of the Youth Climate March happening Saturday, July 21st at 10 a.m. on the National Mall. The main sponsor is Zero Hour, a youth-led movement creating training and resources for young activists who want to take concrete action around climate change. In advance of the march on Thursday, members of Zero Hour lobbied dozens of senators on Capitol Hill, where they met with some lawmakers, including Senator Bernie Sanders, in person. In a meeting with the staff of Senator Tammy Duckworth, Zero Hour members appealed to Duckworth and others to sign onto a pledge to stop the federal government from investing in fossil fuels and to not take campaign contributions from fossil fuel companies. On the grounds, David Williams spoke to Zero Hour activists inside the Hart Senate office building. Jamie Margolin. I am here to lobby our senators. Um, I'm with Zero Hour and we're having our lobby day where youth are talking to our senators about taking climate action and signing our No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge. So what do you want to accomplish with this march? With this march, what we're hoping to accomplish is raising a national sense of urgency around the climate crisis and making sure that it's seen with a national sense of emergency that it's supposed to get and that we're highlighting the voices of youth on the front lines of the climate crisis. So front lines means people who are most impacted. So that's people who live in by a coal plant or an oil well or people who have lost something to a natural disaster caused by climate change or people who are sick or have asthma or some other respiratory disease due to the effects of pollution. So what are your take on young people and whether they engage on the march? I think young people are going to engage a lot on this and it's organized totally by teenagers. This march is totally youth-led and we're expecting a lot of youth to turn out and come because it's our future. Like the reason why this is youth led is not just to have a fancy title. It's because we are at this awkward age where we are going to experience the worst of the climate crisis and be alive for the worst of the climate crisis. 
but we're not going to be able to vote or like I'm under voting age so I can't vote or make any of the decisions that affect our lives. So how do you think you can educate young people on climate and what's going on in the world? I think the way to educate young people on climate and what's going on in the world is, well, one, we have people going into communities, like we've working with community organizers, local indigenous organizers, talking to communities who would usually not be exposed to climate education and talking about it through an intersectional lens, because a lot of times it's very hard to reach youth if you're just saying, like, here's my chart with carbon levels, and it's like some old white guy scientist, and it's like, well, okay, um, and it's very it's not relatable it just seems like a homework assignment but when you talk about it from the perspective of stories of people who have been affected when you talk about it through an intersectional lens which means how does climate change intersect with other issues like it's not a matter of do I pick to fight for Black Lives Matter or climate change no it intersects because somewhere around like 69% of communities of color are closer to coal plants and fossil fuel infrastructure than white communities and that's the reason is because uh, the fossil fuel industries and the government take advantage of people who are the victims of systems of oppression colonialism racism etc and can get away Away with polluting and hurting immigrant communities and people of color much easier than they can get away with hurting white people. So then people die of asthma and cancer because of these coal plants and fossil fuel infrastructure built, and that kills people. So that's another issue of like Black Lives Matter and Black and Brown Lives. So I think the way to reach youth is not presenting it in a, look, carbon levels are rising, but present it in a more personal way, in a way that intersects with situations that people are growing up in and what people care about. Do you think that the youth can make a difference given that you, know, you can't vote and what's the biggest difference you think you can make? I think the youth can really make a difference even though some of us can't vote because the biggest difference that we can make I think is like shifting the national conversation because we don't have any hidden agenda. We don't get paid for the work we do. Like I'm 16, I'm doing this on my own time, sacrificing time out of my life. There's nothing special about me. Like like people can see how our like lack of corruption and it's very genuine and pure. So people tend to listen to us more because it's like these kids wouldn't be speaking up unless something was really wrong. Again, the Youth Climate March is July 21st, 10 a.m. on the National Mall at 7th Street with more than a dozen sister marches and events planned in the United States and Europe. In culture and media, organizers of that Youth Climate March are holding a Youth Climate Art Festival on Friday, July 20th from 4 to 8 p.m. at DuPont Circle in Northwest D.C. And three free exhibits you might want to check out in D.C. that relate to the stories we're covering on On the Ground. They include No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man at the Renwick Gallery, The Trail of Tears about the ethnic cleansing of Native Americans from east of the Mississippi at the National Museum of the American Indian, and City of Hope, Resurrection City and the 1968 Poor People's Campaign, curated by the National Museum of African American History and Culture, but on view at Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. In theaters is Sorry to Bother You, a new searing satire by Boots Riley on the world of work and making it in America. And Nicholas Aponza has a final word on the World Cup, which France won, notably with a team full of African immigrants. Well, 
This is the second World Cup final for France, and I think they deserved it. Croatia, on the other hand, also did well to be in their first ever FIFA World Cup final, though they lost, but it's also a good recognition. At the end of the final, some players were recognized. Kylian Mbappe, who is the second teenager to score at the World Cup final after Pele, won the Young Player Award. And Luka Modric, Croatia's captain, won the player of the tournament. Thank you, Nicholas. And those are headlines and happenings for today. When we come back, more voices from CEOs versus workers. Stay with us. And now I want to welcome to the panel Heather Hudson. Uh, and Heather works for a subsidiary, a fully owned subsidiary, as I understand it, of uh, American Airlines, and that is Piedmont uh, Air. Uh, and Heather is a proud member of the uh, Communications Workers of America. Hello. My name is Heather Hudson, and I work for American Airlines, wholly owned carrier Piedmont Airlines for 11 years. You might recognize the flights as American Eagle. That's me. I'm pleased to be here to represent the service agents at both Piedmont and Envoy Air and be represented by the Communications Workers of America. I'd like to thank Senator Sanders for giving me this opportunity to speak today at this town hall. My story and the stories that you heard from the other panelists are not unique to us. Millions of Americans across this country are going through the same struggles just to make ends meet. And we all work full time for major corporations making poverty wages. We are being paid these poverty wages even though we make these businesses successful. When I started at American, at Piedmont Airlines in Charlotte, North Carolina, 10 years ago, I earned less than $8 an hour. At that time, I was married, and I really wasn't worried about the wages. I was more worried about the flight benefits. So me and my husband and my four children could go places that we never expected we would be able to go. Now that I'm separated and a single mother of four, I rely solely on my paycheck to take care of my family. My current salary, salary after a decade working for Piedmont is less than $14.50 an hour. I cannot make ends meet on my own without working extra hours 
And on those days, I worked 12-hour days. Even with this additional time, I qualify for food stamps and my children receive Medicaid. I've been, I've been getting the support for the past five years. You will never understand how humiliating it is to be at the social service office in line with your coworkers. It shouldn't be this way. The starting wage at Piedmont Airlines right now is $8.50 an hour. I have coworkers who work double shifts every single day. That is from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. because they're not earning enough to take care of their own families. Some of my coworkers work second jobs at fast food restaurants just because they make more per hour than we do. Being a single mom, I don't have the time to work doubles every day. I struggle every month to pay my rent and other expenses. I have three children in college and one two years from, two years from college. My 26-year-old son, Devin, helps me financially. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And those flight benefits that I was so excited about at the beginning of my career, they don't even matter as much anymore. I have to take care of my kids now. So you ask, why do I stay? I stay because I love my job. I love my coworkers. I enjoy my passengers sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but my job is not easy. We're on the tarmac. In Charlotte, North Carolina, you, as if you've ever flown through, we board you on the tarmac. We are out there with you with umbrellas. We're out there in the heat, 90, 100 degree weather. We are Americans, frontline workers, who are expected to project a positive image and provide a smile. We work hard for our company and we deserve more. That's why we're here fighting for living wage and fair contracts for over 9,000 passenger service agents just like me. We service flights for American Airlines carriers Piedmont and Envoy. For me, the most disturbing fact of all of this is that we work for a company that is tremendously successful. American Airlines made $1.9 billion last year. Our CEO, Doug Parker, has said he believes American will never lose money. Is American using this money to support its frontline workers in Piedmont or Envoy? The answer is no. Recently, the company lobbied for more corporate tax cuts and, into, and announced plans to use $2 billion of their profits to, their, to buy back stock through 2020. At the end of the day, I believe it's time for this company to share those profits with us, the workers, who are key to their success. I and the other workers should not have to work extra hours. We should not have to get other jobs just to make ends meet. My oldest son should not have to be taking care of me and his siblings. My son, who is two years away from college, should not have to work, worry about financial fears to go to college. It's time for American Airlines to increase our pay. I thank you, Senator Sanders, for letting me tell my story and believing in that the workers like me deserve a living wage and fair contracts. Thank, Thank you. you.
You have been listening to Voices from the CEOs versus Workers Town Hall, hosted by Senator Bernie Sanders on July 16, 2018, on Capitol Hill. We'll be right back. Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang. Breaking rocks and serving my time. Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang. Cause the done convicted me a crime. I hold it steady right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working and working. But I still got so terribly far to go. I committed crime, Lord, I need it. Crime of being hungry and poor. I left the grocery store and breathing when they caught me robbing a store. Hold it steady right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working and working, but I still got so terribly far to go. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this is the third show of the month for July 2018, and so it's time for our monthly segment, The F Word, about fascism. Joining me for this discussion is on the grounds, geopolitical analyst Gerald Horn, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. The most recent of his more than three dozen books is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Thank you for joining me for the F Word this month, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Wednesday, July 18th, marked the centennial of the birth of Nelson Mandela, the South African revolutionary who was imprisoned for 25 years before becoming the first democratically elected president in post-apartheid South Africa. And so thinking about the genocidal, murderous system of apartheid got me thinking again about this idea of classic fascism, a term which is usually only applied to the repressive European regimes of the 1930s, including Spain, Germany, and Italy, and the millions of people, including six million Jews, murdered by the Hitler regime. And so that word fascism stands for the ultimate evil, and it is a word that is used only by a few theorists in connection with, for example, the brutal repression and mass murder under South African apartheid, the centuries of murder, brutality, and economic exploitation during the enslavement of African people in the United States, or during the genocide of Native Americans. And so we'll go into that during this discussion, but In recognition of the centennial of Mandela's birth, let's start with South Africa. And I know you have a book coming out on South Africa. And so what are your thoughts about the semantics of this history and the impact of how we name history? Well, first of all, I think it would be fair to characterize pre-1994 South Africa as being a fascist regime. And I think it's important to recognize the contribution of Nelson Mandela in terms of its own fight against apartheid. Now, of course, there's this appointment with current day post-1994 South Africa, understandably, given the fact that it has some of the most enormous gaps in terms of wealth distribution on planet Earth. 
and many point the finger of accusation at Nelson Mandela and his comrades in terms of the deal that was negotiated leading to elections in 1994. But I think what people fail to acknowledge is what F.W. de Klerk, the last apartheid leader, acknowledged when he freed Mandela in February 1990, which was that he was taking account of the fact that the Berlin Wall had begun to crumble in November 1989, just a few weeks earlier, he thought that socialism, which had been a major contributor to the fortunes of Mandela's African National Congress, would be disintegrating rather soon, and he proved to be correct, and that would put Mandela and the ANC in a disadvantageous bargaining position, which happened to be correct. And that, it seems to me, helps to explain the kind of disappointment that is felt widely, not only in South Africa, but amongst the friends of South Africa and North America. I should also say that that should not stain at all the contribution of Nelson Mandela, who spent almost three decades in prison. And you should also know, as other scholars have pointed out, and as I'll be uh, reiterating in my book, that uh, Nelson Mandela, for a good deal of his political career, including in prison, was a leading member of the South African Communist Party. And that's oftentimes forgotten, particularly when you look at the recent remarks of former U.S. President Barack Obama in South Africa just a few days ago, uh, speaking to a crowd that was assembled to honor uh, Mandela. And that underscores as well that South Africa and apartheid and fascism would not have lasted as long as it did, but for the ample military, financial, strategic, and other contributions of U.S. imperialism, which makes it rather ironic that Mandela now is treated as some sort of sainted figure in North America when U.S. imperialism was a major factor in ensuring that he would be jailed for so many decades. I think that a lot of times people don't understand the impact of apartheid in terms of calling apartheid South Africa a fascist society, you know, refresh our memory about really what the African population endured. Well, first of all, let's return to the classic definition of fascism as uttered by Georgi Dimitrov, the Bulgarian revolutionary who stared down Hitler's minions in a German court in the 1930s. Uh, fascism, according to Dimitrov, was the open, naked terrorist dictatorship of the most reactionary sector of the capitalist class. And I think that that's an apt descriptor for pre-1994 South Africa. Uh, keep in mind that in terms of the population defined as white, there was an Afrikaner sector that was the ruling group. And of that Afrikaner sector, the most reactionary portion of that sector was dominant. Uh, as I point out in my book, uh, one of the leaders of South Africa pre installation of post-1948 apartheid was actually uh, of German origin, was in close touch with Hitler in the 1930s, used to give broadcasts on the radio in South Africa in German, even though a good deal of the population did not speak German. And along with that, of course, you saw the mass incarceration of Africans uh, in South Africa, you saw the frequent hanging and execution of Africans in South Africa. You saw the destruction of unions in South Africa, the illegalizing of unions in South Africa. You saw women being tossed into jail willy-nilly in South Africa. So I think it's fair to say that those particular points help to illustrate 
why many of us consider South Africa pre-1994 to be a fascist society. And I suppose also one of the definitions we've been using on this segment has to do with the relationship between the state and the corporation or capital. Billionaires and you know corporations becomes indiscernible. And we've talked about that in a lot of different ways in terms of the United States. But in South Africa, you had the complete control of the economy, the riches of South Africa, the diamonds, the gold all the natural resources in the hands of a very small group of white Afrikaners. Well, what's also striking is that if you look at classic fascism, to use your term, in terms of Germany in the 1930s, what's striking is that war means plunder. And the German fascists would plunder other countries and then bring back the booty to Germany and distribute it to their supporters and minions. Also, recall that I lived in Hong Kong at the turn of the 21st century and did a book about uh, Hong Kong, the former British colony during World War II. And what's striking about Japanese imperialism throughout Asia, particularly in Hong Kong, is that they would cart away whole factories from Hong Kong and bring them to Japan. And then those factories would be staffed by Japanese employees. And likewise, in South Africa, uh, there was the, not only the mass looting and plundering of the African population, but as well, as I talk about in my book, there was a conscious effort assisted by the Carnegie Corporation of New York in the 1930s to have what was called an affirmative action program for the Africana minority to solidify their support for the bestiality of the regime. And that was basically post-1948 apartheid, a kind of affirmative action program for a minority Afrikaner population, which had a bare plurality in terms of the European population generally, or perhaps a bare majority more accurately. So you cannot understand fascism without understanding that it not only represents the evil wishes of a tiny minority, but oftentimes it helps to broaden its base by pillaging and plundering other peoples and redistributing the booty to their minions. You know, something you just said makes me think of right now, you know, here in the United States, and I don't want to jump around too much, but when you, when you talk about, you know, plundering and redistributing wealth, you know, that's what we're going through right now in the United States. <laughs> Well, of course, look at the origins of settler colonialism in North America. It involved the plundering and pillaging of Native Americans in the first place, the redistribution of their land to European settlers, who then began to kidnap Africans in mass, plundering and pillaging Africans of their wealth, and then forcing these Africans to work for free for the enrichment of this settler class and those who were attached to that settler class. So that's one of the reasons why I don't think, as I think you're trying to suggest, that we should be distracted by the term fascism and seeing it as a kind of unique phenomenon in the 1930s and detaching it from a previous odious history. Right. And actually, you mentioned your book, and I was going to get to that. I'm really curious to have you talk about the 
naming of the book, really, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, because it, the book lays out the beginnings of what would be centuries of murder, brutality, and economic exploitation of enslaved people. By using the term apocalypse, I was trying to indicate the gravity of what befell the indigenous people of North America and the Africans who came in their wake uh, post-1492. That is to say, a mass murder, a genocide, denuding of wealth. And with regard to trying to connect these two phenomena that we're discussing, European fascism and settler colonialism, I find it striking that two of the major European countries that went fascist in the 20th century, Spain and Portugal, were also the nations that initiated post-1492 that earlier new era of colonialism and genocide and settler colonialism. And what's striking about both is that from their inception, they were marked by bigotry. Recall that 1492 not only marks the time when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, it also marks the time when Jewish people were expelled from Spain and the Iberian Peninsula generally, when Muslims who had been ruling Spain for hundreds of years were finally defeated. And what I find striking as I dig into that history in preparation of a new book on the 1500s is how the Muslims who remained in Spain, in many ways, I'm afraid to say, remind me of black Americans. What I mean is they tried to assimilate like black Americans have sought to assimilate. Many of them converted to Christianity, which for a Muslim... I'm sure you know it's quite a move, but just like black Americans tried to change their hair or take these British names like Horn, for example. Oh, they didn't take they didn't take the names. Okay, they they were left with the names. So, well, whatever the case, and but that did not save them. Uh, in fact, they were finally expelled about 1609. And once again, I don't think you can begin to understand a fascist Spain under General Franco, who was finally removed from power when he died in 1975, or fascist Portugal, which finally was overturned by a military revolt of progressive soldiers in April 1974 uh, after waging a bloody war to keep Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau under a bloody colonialism. You can't begin to understand that kind of 20th century history of bestiality without understanding the post-1492 history of those two countries that occupy the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal. So the reason we call this segment the F word when it was launched three and a half years ago is because we wanted to acknowledge that academics of all disciplines were reluctant, and I'd say probably more reluctant than they are now. There are more people talking about fascism, writing about fascism. Uh, even if they're doing it in a way that I think is kind of beside the point. And there are more people now willing to even use that word to describe, for example, the brutality and murder uh, by Israel and Palestine, or or even to describe what we call these, these murderous, you know, U.S. or U.S.-backed invasions like Iraq, Libya, and now Yemen, which will total millions of people killed directly or indirectly. So 
all these countries, you know, targeted, and we need to include Syria and the countries of Latin America, either are or have been under the boot of colonialism or neocolonialism by European countries or the United States. So the fact that we don't often use this terminology, the word of fascism to describe what's happened in these countries, you know, is this a, a matter of, as Orwell said, those controlling the present, controlling knowledge of the past? So as a historian, what, what are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that it reminds me of some of these discourses you hear from those who lived through fascism in Germany and Italy when they claim that they did not know what was going on. I dare say that there are people in the United States today who only have a vague understanding and knowledge of what you just articulated, that is to say, the overthrow of the Gaddafi regime by the Obama administration in 2011, which created a bloodbath in that North African country. The U.S. support for the Saudis in Yemen which has led to a famine that is particularly impacting children and youth. With regard to the 2003 George W. Bush invasion and occupation of Iraq, which, as you know, helped to give rise to the so-called Islamic State, the late 1970s intervention of the Carter administration in Afghanistan as a way to lure the Soviets into a kind of trap, which basically worked, which has created, of course, not only the rise of the Taliban uh, since that unfortunate maneuver by President Carter, uh, but also led directly to the attack on New York on September 11, uh, 2001. So it's very striking that ignorance, in many ways, is the lubricant of what you could call fascism or what could easily be called a fascist-like impositions particularly those implanted by U.S. imperialism. So I recently had a chance to go to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum here in D.C. with my summer interns, and they have uh, a, a new exhibit called What Did Americans Do? And it really talks about how the United States really, uh, basically the, the anti-Jewish sentiment here in the United States for so long, they took polls and how many people in the United States believe that, that Jews were responsible for what was happening to them in Europe. Uh, it talked about, of course, the refusal to admit refugees. And, you know, we've been writing about what's happening right now with the, the horrible treatment of the immigrant families coming to Mexico's border, the separation of families. Now they're saying they don't know where some of the parents are of the children that they have basically kidnapped. I was looking at this exhibit in reference to what's happening today, but it's also just very interesting to like revisit that history. Well, that reminds me of two points. One, with regard to Germany and the Holocaust, the 1930s and 1940s, recall that there were a number of Hollywood moguls who were of Jewish ancestry, uh, in many cases first generation out of Eastern Europe, but were reluctant to speak out against fascism because of fear of what Hitler might do in terms of circumscribing their ability to invest in certain markets in Central and Eastern Europe. But at the same time, you had uh, directors and screenwriters and craftspersons like painters and carpenters 
who did speak out. So there was a class and ideological character to how people reacted to what was going on in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. Secondly, it also reminds me of the United States. If you had asked the 63 million folks who voted for Donald J. Trump in November 2016, I doubt if they could have been persuaded two years ago to say that they would vote for a candidate who would kidnap children, break up families on the Texas-Mexico border, and engage in these other obscene outrages that we are now witnessing. But now, in July 2018, we see this happening. We see that Trump's base is rock solid, still 80 to 90% approval ratings amongst Republicans, and not visible concern within that Trump base with regard to these outrages and obscenities on the Texas-Mexico border. Uh, This should be chilling to all of us because it suggests to us that there might be even more grave outrages taking place within a year or so that, too, the Trump base will not be concerned about, which obviously means we have a lot of work to do. You know, we see more and more happening every week. Like, people don't like to, they're afraid to use the word fascist. They're also afraid to use the word Nazi, you know? When I went to one of the first demonstrations here about child separation, there was a man there. There was It was a Jewish couple, an older Jewish couple, and the man was holding up a sign saying, separating children is Nazi behavior. Stop it. And a lot of the early demonstrations here uh, you saw a very organized uh, Jewish community really making that connection between the stories that they'd heard or people who had actually experienced things in their family and what they see happening right now. I think that that is a very complicated point that you're raising, but filtering it through my own lens, I have to connect it to this very naive view of the United States and its origins that tends to downplay the bloody origins of this country in terms of mass genocide and mass enslavement of Africans and a naked and brutal white supremacy, and instead opting for this fairy tale and happy talk about people coming in search of liberty and freedom and finding it in a revolt against so-called tyrannical rule from London. I think that if you hold to that latter point, It becomes very difficult, to put it mildly, to understand what's going on in this country and what might be befalling the rest of the world going forward in the next year or two under Trump's misrule. Right. So that almost brings us back to the beginning question of our discussion. In in other words, the couple that I saw and the man that I saw holding up that sign, it's very easy or according to the narrative we're given and all the, the movies we watch, the books that we read, it's very easy to make that comparison to Nazi Germany. It's less probable that we can make that comparison to the African women who, whose children were ripped from their arms in Africa or on this soil, you know, uh, you know, centuries ago, that we don't automatically just go to that analogy. We go to the analogy of Germany. Well, what that reminds me of is once when I was doing research in southwestern Texas, and I saw this gigantic Holocaust museum there, although there was no 
memorializing of the past presence of the indigenous population that had been wiped out, nor was there any acknowledgement of the Mexicans who had once controlled that territory. And then, being familiar with the history of Germany, I'm quite aware of the fact that uh, one of the most popular novelists in Germany, Karl May, wrote all of these stories about Native Americans and made them into heroes and made them into noble figures and there are societies to this very day in Germany that study the history of Native Americans in a way that dwarfs uh, similar efforts on this side of the Atlantic. And what that realization led me to is that oftentimes it's difficult to look overseas and look abroad for horrors rather than look at them in your own backyard because until recently uh, Germany did not have the kind of Holocaust museums for example that now are quite common on the landscape in the United States and as long as people tend to look abroad for horror rather than looking in their own backyard it makes it more likely and probable that even greater horrors will erupt on our own soil. Yeah, I think that um, just in recent weeks, I had to, I was trying, I put out on social media how I thought that people were righteously indignant and, and horrified about what they see happening on the Mexico border. But at the same time, they couldn't you know, make that uh, comparison to what was happening in Gaza or the hundreds of thousands at this point of people in, in Yemen who are dead as a result directly because of the war or indirectly because of, of, of starving to death or having cholera. And these are our bombs and assistance by our military and the UK, the British military, giving this aid to Saudi Arabia to carry out these really genocidal attacks. So... Well, you know. let me make one more point, I mean, mm -hmm. which brings us into today's news in terms of the recent move in Israel to officially proclaim that Israel is an apartheid society, a Jim Crow society of the new type that's going to totally overlook the interests of the 17 to 20% of the Israeli population that is of Arab or non-Jewish descent. And what I find striking about that is many things, but one is that on this side of the Atlantic, as you know, there's this popular phrase, identity politics, which some of our so-called liberal friends apply to Black Lives Matter as a way to dismiss their effort to avoid being shot down by officers of the state. Yet these same liberal friends do not apply the term, quote, identity politics to a state Israel that's based upon an exclusivist ethno-religious conception. Now, I think historians of the future, assuming that Trump doesn't blow up the world, will be scratching their heads and trying to understand that contradiction. And I think that they'll be right to try to understand that contradiction. Of course, finally, I know we're running out of time. We don't have much time left, but uh, we have discussed in our international news segments basically the rise of these far-right governments and factions in Europe now. And uh, do you want to just wind up with that? Well, what's striking is about the kind of support they're getting from the 45th U.S. president. I'm not only speaking of the fact that Mr. Trump's ambassador in Berlin, Richard Grinnell, said a few weeks ago that part of his mission was to help 
to give more authenticity and support to these neo-fascists in Austria and in Italy. But it's also the fact that Mr. Trump himself has a tendency to speak out in favor of those who are to the right of Theresa May, the British Prime Minister. I'm speaking of her recently defrocked Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, and to try to destabilize the conservative Angela Merkel, which will only benefit the neo-Nazi alternative for Germany party. And his advisor, Steve Bannon, has been quite busy in Europe doing the same thing. I think it's fair to say that right now, in terms of the F word and the threat of fascism, one of the major sources giving propulsion to this phenomenon is right there in Washington, D.C. at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in the Oval Office of the White House, which is something that I hope concerns us all. Leaving it there, I so feel so uncomfortable leaving it there because both you and I know that that before 45 came in, we were already on path to not only what we did in, in Libya in terms of murdering Gaddafi and turning that country into a well of chaos and that spread throughout much of Northern Africa, but also the what we did in Ukraine and how even now we are giving aid and support to these far-right neo-openly neo-Nazi groups. So I just don't want to leave it like, you know, Trump is like the emergence of evil. Let me make one more point then on that same score. What's most dangerous today is that in order to try to gain advantage against Trump, the Democrats in some ways are trying to get to the right of Trump. That's the implication, it seems to me, of this flap about Helsinki. That is to say that Trump and Bannon, as I've said before in these airwaves, are trying to have a laser-like focus on China and would like to soften up Russia in the Ukraine and otherwise neutralize it so that there can be a focus on China. The Democrats want to take on Russia and China simultaneously, which in many ways is more dangerous than the Trump phenomenon. And what's even more startling to me and disturbing is that because the black community in recent decades has opted out in terms of its leadership, in terms of having a critical focus on foreign policy, many of our leaders are tailing after the Democrats on this dangerous move that they're making, even though when it backfires, we, that is to say black people, will be the primary and major victim. All right. I just, I just, you know, I would just keep thinking about, I think even Madeleine Albright, who basically sanctioned the, the, the murderous sanctions on Iraq for all those years and even said that a half a million Iraqi children dead was worth it in terms of this, this illegal sanctions war on that country and she's come out with a book talking about fascism i just don't want it to seem like that regime pre-trump is somehow you know they they were better off because they they ushered in the same calamity that we're experiencing so yeah so anyway i i've been speaking with um our geopolitical analysts Professor Gerald Horn, uh, for this episode of The F Word. I thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And that will do it for today's show on a week when there was a meltdown and even charges of treason in the U.S. corporate media. 
and political circles over Trump's meeting with Russia's Vladimir Putin. Yet no similar outcry from those same folks over continued violation of international law by the U.S., the tearing asunder of so-called democracy here, with corporations declared as people, billionaires right here in the U.S., buying elections and millions suffering with poor jobs or no jobs, no health care or poor health care, polluted water and air, and the list goes on. We are committed to continue this work to bring you unreported and underreported stories, unheard voices, and ways to fight back. Speaking of which, if you're in D.C. and you want your tax dollars moved from the criminal Wells Fargo Bank, which is the city's bank, to a public bank owned by and benefiting the people, there will be a third and final citizens meeting on the issue Tuesday, July 25th, 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the RISE Demonstration Center. That's 2730 Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Southeast. I want to thank Gerald Horn and Chantel James for their contributions to today's show. I also want to thank our summer interns who also contributed. Nicholas Aponza, Shailene Parham, Donald Postel, Ezra Reed, Sherelle Walters, and David Williams. The music we played today included Free by Stevie Wonder and the work song by Nina Simone. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Twitter and Facebook pages and help us to overcome those these new Facebook algorithms that are limiting distribution of our content. So like our Facebook page at On the Ground Show. Our Facebook page has the picket sign with the green lettering that says On the Ground. Also, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes at WPFW-OnTheGround. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. I didn't mean to take up all your sweet time. I'll give it right back to you. Oh, what is this? Doing?